Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for July 8th, 2021. The Gab Me Baby One More Time edition. That just occurred to me as we were talking. Good work. <laughs> I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. I'm back from my vacation. Good to be good to be back with the gang. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School joins us on the eve of her vacation. Hello, Emily. Hello. And John Dickerson of CBS's... Uh, that's not where you were from. John Dickerson. <laughs> Of the CBS's ball, Sunday David. morning and Face the Nation joins us. And it's always a vacation with John. John is, really? John is he's a human vacation. Not really. No. John works so hard. Probably not. Hello. How are you? Hi. Um, <laughs> Dude, John sounds hi, so hi, happy to be back with us. I, no, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I couldn't be happier to be back with you all. The only problem is I'm trying to decide at the beginning of each taping, I have to make a determination whether this office I'm in, which is absolutely without any kind of circulating air is going to achieve something by the end of the show where I will have been, well, I will have suffocated and expired. And so I really want to weigh my words carefully before I kick off from heat asphyxiation in this room. So it's that's true really, that if these are the last points you ever make, that yeah, really exactly. does give them extra weight. You should I know, choose I feel, every I, syllable carefully. And I'm, I'm feeling the burden of that. Wow. <laughs> Because it's 900 degrees in New York right now. Wow. This week, John's last words will be about the New York mayoral election and the state of urban progressivism. Then he will also have last words about the Senate candidacy of Hillbilly Elegy author J.D. Vance. And then final words on the conservatorship of Britney Spears, whether it's an outrage and what should be done about it. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter if John makes it that far. Eric Adams, former cop, former Manhattan borough president, is very likely to be the second black mayor of New York City. Adams won the Democratic primary, the first ranked choice primary in New York City, beating both moderate and progressive candidates. He's certainly the one of the most moderate candidates in the field. He notably defeated progressives Maya Wiley and Scott Stringer and Diana Morales running on not quite a law and order campaign, but something as close to you can to that as you can do in New York as a Democrat, probably as a New York mayoral campaign gets. So uh, you guys are closer to New York than I am, John. You are a New Yorker. What? Why did this this candidate who is who's a moderate in a field uh, where people in a in a city which has AOC as one of its its uh, most celebrated politicians and has this incredibly vibrant progressive movement why did he win pretty easily in fact well he didn't win that easily i guess it's i yeah he barely I know, won i, guess, and I, guess, I get confused Garcia, by this ranked who, choice i get confused by the ranked choice he's yeah. like he ends up with a majority but in a ranked choice system someone has to end up with a majority so yeah i that was just my mental confusion okay yeah 
But yeah, no, that's a fair point. He did not win that easily. But why, why did he, he win? win? Well, I, you know, the pause that that uh, that we're having there is, I think it's, I mean, so we we know what he did, and then the question is whether he won because of those things. I mean, also we should note that in the ranked choice voting, Catherine Garcia came in second. Not in the original va- um, ballot, um, Wiley came in second in that. But then, as the as the as the second choices and so forth were allocated over the course of it, in the end, it was Catherine Garcia who was closest um, to Adams, and she was not uh, a particular liberal candidate either, to the extent that Wiley was was um, supported by AOC and other uh, progressive groups. I mean, the post hoc claim is that basically Adams built a coalition of working class voters based on a strong law and order message. Shootings have doubled since 2019. And Adams ran a straight up sort of law and order and safety campaign, not the Trump version of it, which is the gangsters are going to come ruin your suburbs, but that uh, we need law and order in all communities in New York. And that was aggressively against Wiley, who had talked about uh, reallocating police resources to social work and other kinds of, I mean, people would have said defund the police, but I don't think that's exactly what she was doing. She was arguing for reallocation of resources. But that's the quick take. I think it's going to be more complicated than that, but I don't think there's been enough analysis to, to figure out whether that fast take is the right one or just the immediate one. Emily, we have this phenomenon with Joe Biden, of course, and and now uh, maybe with Adams of black and brown voters picking more moderate candidates than white liberals and white Democrats. Do white progressives misunderstand what black and brown voters want? Is, that, is there a fundamental discordancy? Are black Americans more conservative than, than people think they are? Or is this, a, is this too much to be made of that? I think black and Latino voters are more varied than elite progressives of all races sometimes want to admit. I think sometimes black and brown voters get held up as this like monolithic force that is going to go for the most progressive vision of government um, for slogans like defund. And in fact, that's really simplistic and doesn't match the kind of dual concerns they often have in their own lives. Um, I mean, this is certainly true about People in New Haven, they want where I live, the the ninth borough, <laughs> where people the want better borough. policing. What are not... the sixth, seventh, and eighth? I don't know. I just feel like claiming to be the sixth borough when you're like <laughs> on the most pl- the end of the most plotting Greenwich, train line in Westchester, the country. I mean, Philadelphia could be in there too, since it has a faster train connection to New York. Um, now I'm on to my favorite obsession. Uh, onward. Yeah. So I think Adams was kind of perfectly created to drive progressive leaders crazy in that, you know, he's this first of all, he's kind of flamboyant, charismatic character. I mean, the, one of the first things he did after he got a, won the primary was to get his ear pierced in some promise he'd made. There's just something kind of like zany about him there he's also tainted by corruption allegations nothing has really completely landed but he does seem to be in bed with some real estate moguls one wonders about the slices of new york that may be uh, um purchased at a cheaper price um during his mayoralty mayoralty anyway 
Uh, we'll see. And yet, because he is this black guy who's talking about racial justice in the police force and his own history of fighting for it, which is real, but at the same time, I think his a lot of his message of public safety is very common sense and wisely moderate. But then when he said during the campaign, you know, I'd consider bringing back stop and frisk, not the unconstitutional version of it, but some version, I thought, uh-oh. I mean, that really misserved a lot of particularly low-income New Yorkers, black and brown people. And also, there is no evidence that it was really necessary for keeping crime down because after New York ended it, crime continued to decline. So what is happening now with gun violence and the way it's spiking is really terrible, but I don't see the evidence that bringing about stop and frisk is the way to um, address it. And so I was relieved when later in the campaign, Adam started talking about things that are more about addressing the feeders of violence, by which I hope he means the underlying conditions and investing in violence interruption work in neighborhoods. What would it mean even, I I guess I'm a little bit confused about the state of progressivism in cities. It it appears that in the city council elections in New York, and again, I don't know this well, I don't live in New York, so so the the details of this are really beyond me, but it appears they've elected a pretty progressive city council. The controller the person who manages the purse strings is a is again pretty progressive. Brad Lander. Yeah, Brad Lander is, and the the, the new district the, the attorney, attorney Alvin is kind Brad. Of, yeah, yeah, kind of in that vein. Like, yes. what is it? What does it mean? What is is progressivism in great shape in this country, particularly in its big cities, or is it struggling because actually the Bidenism is a, is a counterweight to it? I just am, I don't know. Well, if you look at, I mean, if you look at what President Biden has proposed. Distinct from, I mean, and I think this is the important distinction. It's the where the thrust of the of the ideas, and then what tactically has to happen to get people elected and get things through Congress as it stands. And so you can have that version at the local level too. But if you look at what Biden has proposed, it's more progressive than you would than certainly Barack Obama proposed by a wide margin. And that has to do both with where the party is, maybe where the country is. Although I'm not I'm not secure enough to say that. Um, but also where the politics in Washington are. So the party's much more progressive. At, at its standard bearer is more, much more progressive than the last Democratic president. But that doesn't mean that both Biden, Adams, and the congressional thrust going into the 2022 elections won't be more, much more strategic and therefore have to be less um, invested in progressive signaling and maybe even f- push against progressive signaling. I mean, I feel like the materialist part of the progressive platform are popular and are holding up really well um, in the Biden administration. And we'll just have to see about Eric Adams. What I think is less popular and that Biden and certainly Adams steer clear of is some of the message signaling, some of the rhetoric, which I think is alienating to a lot of people. I mean, I will count myself among them some of the time. And so there's the idea of actually improving people's lives by how you (laughs) redistribute resources. And then there is signing on to every single incidence of language policing and just really monitoring the way people talk. And I think that is a more symbolic set of issues, which to me is less interesting and I think tend to get progressives in trouble. But now we're in the land of confirmation bias. You're in the uh, defund the language police. Exactly. That's that's what you're running on. Well, and also things are difficult. 
I mean, if you look at some of the polling, and again, this is where I think it's, there's going to be a lot of really interesting debate that's going on now, but also throughout 2022, as people assess what happened in this race, and also think about how Republicans or Democrats win in those battleground districts where control of the House and maybe control of the Senate are determined. You know, it's split. Some issues that are associated with liberals are far more popular nationally, say on abortion, for example. uh, There's more of the country supports the quote unquote liberal position that abortion should be legal in in all or most circumstances. Whereas on other issues, it's closer. It's more the country is more conservative. And so to say that where the country is, is very hard, particularly to say where some of these individual districts are, that adds to the complexity of of where progressivism is in terms of, because a lot of what, if you look at, for example, if you define progressivism by what um, President Biden has suggested, um, basically taxing corporations that don't pay their fair share, or what he says don't pay their fair share, that's what J.D. Vance is running on in Ohio. That has broad popular appeal. If you look at child care or elder care, that has massive appeal among Republican voters. So those would be considered big liberal um, squishy positions, but they have enormous uh, support in the country. Well, but John, this goes to the, that point that we get to all the time, which is they have enormous support until they associate with one party or the other, and then people sort. Yes, and I should say, like, um, I, I gave abortion as the example of a liberal position on the conservative side, say funding police departments is more broadly approved of in the country. And that would be, say, considered a conservative position. To your point, David, yes, there's A, once things p- become politicized, they sort. And then B, there's also obviously the huge and ongoing disparity between the political elites um, and political obsessives who participate in off-year elections and participate in the kinds of conversations we're having, and then broad public sentiment, which is often disconnected from that. So most people would say, say on something like gun control, where you have national support for it, but it doesn't have support in Congress because, of, or doesn't go anywhere in Congress because of the way those who participate in the political process have different views. I want to close this segment with an amazing observation that may surprise you guys. You may be as shocked to discover this as I was. Did you know that Cuomo is still the governor of New York? I was, I was like, as I was, as I was reading about the mayoral election, I was like, oh my God, Cuomo, who is, you know, a serial and bruised, bad and actor, is sitting in the governor's office, appearingly untouched, like cruising along on I-95 or on the you know, the, the Henry Hudson turnpike or whatever it is. It's, it's amazing. He's totally brazened it out. Politics has lost its ability to punish people. It's, it's bananas. Well, yeah. And Northam in, in Virginia. Who I was, was thinking about him too. Northam yeah. is, but Northam is such a, is a, is a, you know, has one strike. Cuomo, Cuomo is, is the whole yeah. batting order struck out. Three right. Or four struck times. out three or four times. And then to just mangle the metaphors here went through every key on the key ring and put it in the electrical socket. I mean, like he kept making his situation worse when he talked about it, um, and thereby, you know, re- refreshing the anger and outrage, and yet it wasn't enough. It is, it is kind of amazing. And by the way, the thing that may or may not be helping him, whether it's just amnesia or people are too busy or whatever, his role in handling COVID, now so many reports have come out about how how much right, that was right. a botch. He didn't even do a good job. He didn't even do a good job. Yeah. Yes. 
And Northam only survived, just to note, because the lieutenant governor who would have succeeded him was even more right. compromised. compromised. And Nor- they would have happily, you know, cut Northam loose had had Justin uh, Fairfax not been such a problematic figure, which is not true in New York. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 2016, J.D. Vance won wide praise for his memoir, memoir, memoir-ish book, Hillbilly yeah. Elegy an account of his family and an account of how the white working class and the white non-working class of hillbilly America lost its way. Vance uh, was conservative and Republican for sure, but he was very critical of Donald Trump for his anti-immigration, anti-Muslim rhetoric and for a lot of Trump's approach to the world. But now Vance has had a change of heart, as so many people do. He's entered the Republican primary to succeed Rob Portman as a senator from Ohio. And as expected, he is being Trumpier by the second. So, Emily, who who is J.D. Vance? Is he actually an interesting Republican? Does he represent something new or is he just going to be a, a Trump clone as everyone seems to want to be these days? I mean, I'm kind of interested in him. I mean, he's the kind of Republican that we, the media, give too much attention to just from the get-go because he has this hard scrabble. Um, family history. His family's from West Virginia. His memoir is about growing up in Ohio in a really dysfunctional family. And he wrestles in the memoir with how much individual responsibility his parents and even grandparents bear. And he really comes down kind of hard on them. So he's not like, oh, you know, 
the conditions, the systemic problems that um, these white poor people face really account for what's gone wrong for them. He's willing to allocate blame more directly, and he got a lot of attention for that. And then he went to Yale Law School. I don't know him personally at all, and became like a really successful tech guy. I mean, one of the key funders of the PAC supporting him is Peter Thiel, the libertarian Silicon Valley investor. So he's got all of these pieces of a kind of Republican dream candidate all mixed up, um, all blended together, I should say. And it'll just be really interesting to see whether he just moves in this Trumpy direction, which presumably is what he's going to need to do to win the primary. He had called President Trump's stances in 2016 immoral, particularly regarding immigrants, and seemed at that point to really be able to put his finger on the way in which Trump was using this hateful rhetoric toward immigrants to try to take advantage of white working class voter frustration with how jobs had migrated abroad and, you know, these very real problems in the Rust Belt economy. Now he just seems to be saying, like, Trump's a good guy. He made a lot of good decisions. Um and I'll leave it at that. And that is not the same kind of Republican he was in 2016, but there's no way he can be in this field without bending the knee. And so if Trump's power to endorse the candidate is going to be what makes someone win, that's a necessary move. But also, I don't know why Vance would be able to get that endorsement anyway. It'll be interesting to see if Trump sees him as someone he wants to um, try to support or just like punch in the face. Yeah. Rhetorically speaking. I mean, John, there are a whole bunch of candidates in this race already, Republicans running, including Josh Mandel, who lost a Senate run earlier, but they're all pretty Trumpy. Is there space in the Republican Party for someone who decides to be slightly less Trumpy? And is Trump's voice going to decide who gets the Republican nomination and therefore almost certainly the Senate seat? I think um, Emily's exactly right about the uh, excessive attention that um, we pay to, to to J.D. Vance and, you know, we constantly pay excessive attention to all kinds of people for the wrong reasons. One thing I think he warrants some additional attention, there are a bunch of different things. There are the questions you raised, David, which is um, he is more proof of the power of the Trump market. Listeners may have heard me talk about this before. But here's a person who came to fame, considerable fame, as an insightful bridge between kind of um, either left-wing elites or just the country in general and a specific part of the Trump constituency. And what was great about it is it coincided with Trump's rise. It wasn't an explanation of it to the extent, it didn't come out after Trump won. It was published in the middle of, it was published in 2016. So it was insight into, and as Emily said, what made it interesting was it wrestled it embraced complexity. And one of the things we all hate about politics is that it kills complexity. Everything is binary. So one of the things about his journey that he's gone on, J.D. Vance, is he's gone from being a person of complexity to being a person of binary Trump market adherence. And that just gives you some further indication of just how super powerful that market is. He was notable because he could translate with all the corrugated, to use David's excellent and favorite word, not favorite, but the corrugated aspects of the white working class and Appalachia and the non-working um, poor white class, all of its complexities. He understood it and, and spent a lot of time rising in life as a translator of that world. But now he's saying in supporting Donald Trump that he kind of missed, that he kind of has come to a new understanding of that group. So he's, so he's kind of taking two bites of the 
Apple, which means did he have it wrong the first time? Because he's now got this fresh revelation. But then, and this is this is not the extent of all the interesting things of this campaign. One thing about being a kind of whatever a flip flopper or embracing your flip flopperness is that in fact that's not a bug; it's a feature. Because what he's doing is he's going into the middle of the town square, getting a lot of attention for it, and tattooing a huge, you know, Donald Trump on his chest. You take no penalty for being a flip-flopper, and you get the benefit of a public embracing of the kingmaker in the Republican Party right now. And so you could imagine almost that in Republican primaries, if you were a candidate and seeking an instruction booklet, the number one thing to do would be to do some super high-profile switch and show your allegiance to Donald Trump, because you get all the fresh attention for doing what is the number one thing you have to do in a primary. And so in old days, it would have been seen as a downside to change your position. In this context, it's probably the best thing he can do. Now, whether it actually helps him or not, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is... I can add just one other very quick thing, which is we were talking about the previous topic. One thing that J.D. Vance, if he, if he just sticks to sort of culture war stuff and critical race theory, and that won't be interesting. What he said in one of his interviews with Molly Ball in Time Magazine was he basically talked about how the, the rich corporations aren't being taxed enough. And he said... Who built the roads and bridges that allow you to do business? Which is basically exactly what Barack Obama said in 2012 about you didn't build that. In other words, a government has some role in this economy. It's something that you could never say as a Democrat. It's really interesting to see somebody in a Republican primary trying to say that. Now, he may say it only once and never say it again. But if he is saying those kinds of things, that might be actually interesting to see what the market is for those ideas, which are not traditional country club Republican versions of Um, taxation and government spending. Well, I think where he seems to be going is that there is an elite that needs to be destroyed. And this elite is certain big corporations that he doesn't like. Big tech. It's like Josh Hawley, right? Well, and Peter Thiel. It's like whatever Peter Thiel picks. Well, but I mean, actually, if you were being consistent, you would want to destroy Peter Thiel. But it's like the rhetoric of like shaking your fist at big tech and other big corporations is Josh Hawley. And and government, too, though. It's also a government elite that is ruling you. Yes, yes, yes. You're right. But it's uh, one of the things I find interesting, Emily, which which I'm interested in you you as a hillbilly elegiologist talking about, is that hillbilly elegy was not uh, victimology. It blamed people for their own problems. It said, yes. "You are you are responsible, and not for everything that's gone wrong with you. You're not. You did not create the opiates that are flooding your community. Let, but we'll concede but that. You're taking them. But you're taking and I'm them. Holding you yeah. responsible. And you for don't that. go. You're not going to church. You're not. You know, yes. working hard. You're not raising your children. And now, Vance is moving towards the the p- general position that everyone wants to take, which is that we're all we're victims. We're victims. You are a victim." You're a victim of these shadowy forces, these corporate elites that are controlling you and and have have made life terrible for you. And and I guess where so the the Democratic line on this tends to be you're a victim and government can help you uh, because the, these you've been exploited by the market or you've been exploited by some rapacious person that wants to exploit you and we're government's here to help. Vance was occupying the old traditional conservative, which is you're responsible for your bad behavior. And now he's occupying this Trump world, which is you're a victim. And it's also the shadow elites. And we just have to crush the enemy. 
Yeah, I think that's really well put and interesting. And it shows that the personal responsibility line may not be very politically popular or useful, especially in a Republican primary. I mean, I was also interested going back and reading things he's written before, lots of despairing about church attendance declining. That's something that people are individually choosing, right? I mean, I wonder as a politician if that's really a winning line, because if that attendance is going down, then you're kind of berating the people you're trying to get support from for not going to church. I wonder if how receptive people like I wouldn't want to be berated for not going to synagogue. I have my own reasons for my religious I, worship. I think that might have been just him doing analysis rather than him being a politician, which it would be, yeah, that that would be an odd argument for people to make as a politician. Exactly. Um, but one thing that in, interests me about the tech argument is he's arguing that his time as a venture capitalist gives him unique insight into how to take on the tech companies. Whatever, that's what you got to do when you're, you know, when you're running for office. In my case, you know, I would run for office saying wearing a green hoodie and having blonde hair gives me unique insight into the problems of the world. You just define the problems of the world as linking directly to whatever clothes you happen to be wearing at the moment. And so, whatever, it's what you got to try and do. But you're not even wearing. Are you wearing a hoodie? It doesn't even look like a hoodie. Yeah. That's like barely. Yeah. Okay, it has a hood. All right. Um, bye. Anyway, but what's interesting? So, okay, he's got to go with what he's got to go with. So, will he get any purchase? And and if so, that's interesting. But but secondarily, what interests me about it is he is embracing both by embracing Donald Trump and the culture war that Donald Trump represents. But secondarily, with this tech argument, because the tech argument is essentially a culture war argument, which is these elites are telling you what to do and how to live your life which is kind of like what he was doing in his original book in terms of, of making moral claims about the way people were living their lives. Nevertheless, he's taken on a kind of traditional political culture war argument here. He's appealing essentially to the extremely online and the, and the extremely involved in conservative politics. But that is the kind of behavior that elected all of the politicians that he rails against in his, or that, that those people he talked about in his, in his book rail against, which is those politicians who basically win based on these kinds of cultural appeals and never never do anything to actually help people. It'll be interesting to see if basically he follows the playbook that led to the conditions that he wrote about in, the, in, in his book, which would be a kind of secondary step away from what he wrote. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. We love doing our bonus segments and you get an extra little dose of GabFest, usually usually a kind of weirder, more discursive, uh, sometimes more personal uh, segment that we do. So you should join if you like the GabFest. And if you like other Slate podcasts, you also get bonus episodes of some of them and no ads on Slate podcasts if you join. So go to slate.com slash GabFest plus today. Our topic this week is should you quit Twitter? Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Become a Slate Plus member. The Britney Spears conservatorship, or to use a term that is used in other states that are not California, the guardianship is all over the news. It got the mark, the cultural imprimatur of great importance, which is a Ronan Farrow investigation done with Gina Tolentino in The New Yorker as well as a New York Times documentary framing Britney Spears that came out, I think, last year about the, the guardianship. Uh, Spears made a remarkable live appearance in a late June court hearing about her 13-year-old 
constraint in which her entire life, her finances, her personal life, her medical and work decisions are controlled by others, uh, mostly by her father, but by others. She made a remarkable appearance in late June in which she said she wanted it over effectively and, and gave a very impassioned speech about the level of control that was being exercised over her life. A middle-aged woman of enormous talent and huge wealth and huge success, uh, a mother and an adult who's, who's clearly capable of incredible accomplishments, and she resents the fact that she is being controlled in this way. So, Emily, what is a conservatorship, and is what has happened to Spears unusual or abusive? And I should note, stating this question, that her conservators deny a lot of Spears' allegations about what she says has been done to her. What's happening to her is abusive. Whether it's unusual or not, I wish it was unusual. I think it may not be. I mean, so what's supposed to happen in a conservatorship in California or a guardianship anywhere else is that there's some showing that you are unable to manage your own affairs. And then there's a court case where the judge appoints um, a responsible person or an organization, that's the conservator, to care for you and make decisions. And then there's a lawyer who's supposed to represent the conservatee, you, in this arrangement. And everybody is supposed to be doing what's, they're supposed to be looking out for your interests. What seems to have happened in this case was after a very brief hearing at which Spears was not present and did not speak, um, a lawyer was appointed. Back, who, this is back in 2008. Yes, this is back in 2008. A lawyer was appointed who really seems to be mostly representing the interests of Spears's father, who is the main conservator power in this arrangement. And everybody seems to have terrible incentives to keep this arrangement going indefinitely. They're all being literally like fed by all by the money that Britney Spears makes. So, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. If she tries to challenge the conservatorship, she has to pay for the opposing counsel's fees as well as her own efforts to get representation, which have failed. This judge in this case seems completely irresponsible in the way that she's handled it. And it's possible that, you know, Britney Spears has much greater mental health challenges that are apparent from this recent set of facts. But whatever is going on, the idea that you would keep it going this way and that effectively the burden is on Spears to get herself out of the arrangement, that is, first of all, like incredibly just disturbing for to hear about any adult in that kind of arrangement. And second of all, it seems like just totally counter to the law and that the lawyer involved in this who's now asked to resign, seems like he's been really just, I, I mean, I, it just seems really appalling all around. And Spears herself, I think, really put it well. She said, I shouldn't be in a conservatorship if I can work and provide money and work for myself and pay other people. This is something she said in court last week. It makes no sense. The laws need to change. And that just seems very clear. I mean, you can imagine an arrangement like this for someone who, you know, is older, suffers for serious dementia, has some other truly debilitating mental condition. But none of that seems to be true of her. And the limits on her freedom um, are just really upsetting. And so this seems to me like the rare case in which the complaints of a huge celebrity are entirely justified and illuminating in a way that we really, like, really need to pay attention to. How often are there guardianships placed on young people who are 
not suffering from dementia? I mean, I really hope the answer is almost never, because this is such a restrictive arrangement for someone like her, right? There are other things. You could give away some limited power of attorney. You could have someone who helps you manage your financial affairs. This is not that. This is someone whose medication and therapy is controlled, who says she can't take out the birth control device she has that's preventing her from having children. I mean, this is really, really coercive, scary stuff, and it the, like, eeriest part to me reading was it seems like her efforts to assert her independence are used against her and that mental health treatment, including prescribing lithium, which is a drug with really serious side effects, are just being used to control her whenever she tries to speak up for herself. That's really haunting. What struck me in reading about all the little market that exists for hangers on or maybe helpers But there's a market in the world for lawyers and agents who manage the careers of women who've been destroyed by the public eye, by the paparazzi, by the fame, by the media, that that this is a conservatorship that is perpetuated by a society that is like waiting with um, sharp cutlery outside the door that that ruins the lives of any young women who become famous. It's not just Spears' story, it's that she is another one of the kind of collateral damage of a, of a process of fame that is grotesque in our culture. Right, and it seems like maybe at the outset, this conservatorship was agreed upon as a way to protect her from these, you know, presumably men who were going to come in and steal all her money and exploit her. The problem being that it seems like her father is perhaps chief among those men. And in any case, the idea that you're going to take away someone's freedom, even if it's freedom to make some really bad choices, like that's a very serious step. And it also feels like this all got tangled up with her custody battle for her kids in a way that feels like super gendered and unfair to her. Yeah, it's very, it's really complicated. And a lot of the the, the defense of the, the conservatorship is, well, look, she has a $66 million fortune. She's been, her money has been managed capably. She hasn't squandered it all away. She hasn't been exploited by the, this truly, it did seem like she was surrounded by various parasitical people, not just her father, but she was surrounded by other parasitical people who were not her father, who were taking advantage of her and that she was perhaps not, did not have good instincts or defenses to prevent them from taking advantage of her. But money is not like money is not the be all and end all. The fact that Britney Spears now is sitting on $66 million. I'm sure it's nice. I'm sure she's, she's glad that she can buy gasoline when she needs to buy gasoline, but it is, it doesn't replace the sense of autonomy and will and, and freedom that matters for life. And, part of what makes life worth living is the freedom to make bad decisions. And it also doesn't sound like she is a, a person who puts others at in danger. Her She loves her children. She wants to be a good mother to her children. No doubt the way she mothers her children is not the way you mother your children or the way, you know, every person mothers their children, but it doesn't, there's no evidence that she is a, she's an unfit mother. And so it's, it's a painful situation. I also want to make sure we don't overread into it the situation of one, one particular celebrity, one particular vulnerable person, and therefore assume that guardianships and conservatorships are, are never to be, to exist and, and are completely uh, corrupt, because I don't think that's the case either. 
Well, so I agree with you about that, but they need better guardrails. I mean, the law should not allow for this kind of situation where you have this indefinite um, continuing, continuing, and the people in power are the ones profiting from it. Like, that's not okay. Um, Even if there are other situations in which guardianships are much more um, warranted and are really being carried out in the best interests of the people who are being guardianed. Another thing about all the money, I mean, she doesn't even have to have access to this money, right? They have her on a pretty limited yeah, allowance. That, and so, did you see that stat where, sorry to interrupt, where, I don't know if this is current, but that her allowance is less than her lawyer is being paid. Yeah, I mean, come on. There seems to be a perpetual machine at work here, which is that they don't dare let her return to the freedoms of the life that is inescapable for her. I mean, it's like saying we can't let a race car driver drive in a car because race car driving is dangerous. But he's a race car driver. I mean, the the things that she is in danger of doing, presumably, and that the conservatorship is is protecting her from, is her bread and butter, is the that throbbing machine is always going to be a, a reason to deny her her freedom, which is which isn't correct. But that does seem distinct to her case. Which is, you know, so for example, if I'm a troubled teen and there's a conservative, and Emily, tell me if that's not even a situation which you would have conservatorship, but in a non-celebrity conservatorship relationship, it seems to me the bar would be lower for releasing them back into the regular world because the world would be more regular than the extremely screwed up world in which Britney Spears has to live, a world made screwed up not by her actions, but by societies. These are for adults. So if you're under the age of 18, like you already have your parents yeah. in this role. You're right? already in a conservatorship. But if you're already we, all of us, us are have conservatorships. But if but but are there instances in which somebody after they're 18, I could imagine, you know, for example, they're in college. So they're they're post 18, but their parents still have some relationship over them do they go into concern what's the like normal use case of a conservatorship and i think the normal use case is really elderly people with dementia yeah okay right and college students actually have lots of rights right for example if you um seek psychiatric treatment in college your parents do not have the right to find out about it or what's going on and that's like a really difficult issue for colleges acting in loco parentis to turn to the latin for a moment but teenagers over the age of 18 like they have the right to make their own decisions. So I just guess I don't see how Spears's case, as grotesque and interesting and and varied as it is, really has that much attachment to the lives of other people. Well, I mean, the law shouldn't allow for abuses like this. And sometimes, even if it's not that common, this particular instance, it's still showing this very cozy arrangement sure. among these different repeat players in the California system. And I think that's worth exposing. And also, there are situations in which people are really wealthy, frankly. And so, yeah, maybe they have mental instability or disabilities, but do they really need something as restrictive as this arrangement when more limited um, options are available? There's a pretty good movie called I Care a Lot, which is about a corrupt guardian. And it's about a, a woman uh, played by Rosamund Pike. And it's, it's, it's disturbing. And it's, a, it's about how this happens to old people, too. So it, it, is, it has implications beyond just Spears. I mean, when you think about taking away someone's individual freedom to make choices, like that's a very extreme thing to do. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you're wearing a green hoodie, 
hoodily greening around John Dickerson and having a drink. What are you going to be chattering about? My chatter is about um, Congressman Andy Kim, who represents the 3rd District of New Jersey. When I was interviewing Lonnie Bunch, who's the um, secretary of the Smithsonian, recently, he talked about how they have this rapid reaction force after historical events like the, the riots on January 6th, where the historians kind of rush into the community, and this was done also after the Black Lives Matter marches, to grab historical artifacts and not just pick them up off the street, but find ones that have significance to the community and to, to gather the stories that, that fill up the significance of these artifacts. And Andy Kim wore a blue suit on the day of the riots on January 6th. And, he, and then after the riots took place, he wore what he was wearing that suit when he cleaned up the Capitol. And he uh, received some notoriety for basically mucking in and doing the sweeping up the glass and turning the lecterns back over and basically beginning immediately the restoration of the physical uh, building that had been desecrated by the rioters who'd been inspired by the outgoing president. And that suit is now going to the Smithsonian. And what interests me about that is that why do you wear a suit at these moments? You wear a suit to dignify the ceremony that's taking place. And the ceremony and the desecration of the same wire ceremony is important. They are the handing off of traditions over the course of either a, a religion or a family or, or a country. And you, you honor the traditions by wearing a suit. And of course, what was being done on the 6th was a dishonoring of those traditions. All of the architecture and all of the ceremony was was meant to honor something, and there were people there to desecrate it. And so the choice of wearing a suit to clean up after the desecration has, to me, this interesting connection between ceremony, desecration, and what we honor. We put things in museums to remember the desecrations, but then also remember the other parts of the desecrations, which is the to honor those things that endure, that, that live throughout American history, even when America has fallen and stumbled, the things that represent the best of America. And those are the things that we go visit to be reminded about. So that was all going through my head when they entered this into what I guess will be some future Smithsonian exhibit on the 6th of January. Ibaz, what is your chatter? I uh, was listening this week to This American Life to the episode that they called There I Fixed It. And I thought that the journalist Lena Misitis did a really good job of exploring the complexities of Congress's efforts to regulate sex trafficking, in particular um, online ads from Backpage, most notoriously. So Congress passed this law called SESTA-FOSTA a couple years ago. SESTA is short for Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act. And the idea was that you could stop sex trafficking by going after sex ads on the internet. The problem with this law, and I think Lena shows this really well, is that it's not about harm reduction. It doesn't really think about the collateral consequences. So everyone agrees that, you know, sex trafficking generally is terrible, that sex trafficking of children is diabolically terrible. And so the idea that you would allow Backpage to keep showing ads that would include that is horrible. You can totally understand why Congress wanted to stop that. But they also outlawed ads for consensual sex work, and that drives sex work underground. It pushes more people who do it out into the streets into more dangerous situations. And Lena found a really good person to talk to about this, a woman named Kara, who had been sex trafficked and describes that in really 
disturbing detail, but then also tried to do consensual sex work for herself later in life and was really undone by the limitations in this law. So I recommend this segment. The last thing I'll say is that one of the problems this woman Kara had was she had a record for prostitution citations and arrests. And so that was part of why she didn't get a different kind of job rather than doing consensual sex work. And that is also an argument for decriminalizing sex work because it really feels like that's a hinge point in her story. If she hadn't had that kind of record, she might have been able to find other kinds of work. My chatter, uh, first of all, this is not my chatter. I have been defeated Justice Stephen Breyer, you have defeated me. I surrender. <laughs> you it's win. True. Oh America loses, but you win. He no more. You. No more Breyer Fantasias. I did my best. I thought I would. I thought I would outlast him, but <gasps> I'm conceding defeat because Justice Stephen Breyer. I have been imagining that Justice Stephen Breyer had resigned, retired from the Supreme Court, which any normal person facing the circumstances that he faces would have done, given given the political situation and the situation in the court and the, his his advanced years. And, and so I imagined over the past, I don't know, six months, the different situations that retired Justice Breyer might have found himself in. And now that he, he's made it clear he's going to remain on the court, apparently, at least another year, maybe many more years, I just cannot continue to create these fantasias. He's he's there. He's stuck, and it's just too painful. And and uh, listeners are, I'm sure, sick of it. And it was fun while it lasted. I had a great time. Maybe we'll put together a whole collection of them. There were some good ones in there. I got, I enjoyed doing it. But whatever. My actual chatter, however, is uh, I was away on vacation with my kids in New Mexico. New Mexico is a like a 12 out of 10 state. If you have not been there, wow, what a great state. What an amazing state. But I want to talk about my favorite place, the Bisti Dinazen Wilderness, the Bisti Badlands, it's known more colloquially. And it's an area in the northeast part of the state. It's maybe about the size of Washington, D.C. And maybe, is it that big? Maybe not quite that big. 20 square, say it's 20 square miles. It's just off the Navajo Reservation uh, near the town of Crown Point on the Navajo Reservation. And it is a absolutely mesmerizing alien wild landscape of wind and water carved hoodoos these sort of sand statues sandstone statues that sandstone that ends up carved in the shape of giant eggs delicate impossibly thin wind carved towers uh, more petrified logs than you can shake a stick at it is one of the most beautiful and strange places i have ever seen so if you go and I strongly suggest you do go. You should go with uh, Navajo Tours USA, which is a native-owned guide service. Loved it. My kids loved it even more than I did. And the drive to it is so gorgeous. So check out the the Bisti Badlands in New Mexico if you possibly can. It is it is well worth the the diversion, the excursion to it. And we should note, as you fly on your plane to get there, you should read Emily's cover story in the New York Times magazine. Thank you, John. You know, it, after so much and so long uh, working on the piece, it's it now lives in the world um, and people should go read it. Read it. Uh, listeners, you send excellent chatters to us every week and please continue to keep them coming. They, they cheer us up, they educate us, they divert us, and we love sharing them with uh, with everyone else who listens to the GabFest. And this week's listener chatter, which was sent to us via tweet at at Slate GabFest, comes from William Quill. 
Hi Gabfesters, this is William Quill calling from Dublin in Ireland. My chatter is a graphic display from The Pudding that uses national flags to show the country most in New York Times headlines for each month from January 1900 to the end of 2018. It's a great visualisation of changing foreign policy interests. The United Kingdom is clearly prominent in the early 20th century, fading away as the decades go on, but never disappearing. Germany dominates in World War I, though less so in World War II, but there's more of a mixed interest in the Allies and Axis countries. Russia is there at the start and end of the Cold War, but it's China that has been there since 2008, after Iraq leaves the headlines. It's fun to spot where a country breaks through trends. I found Ireland in June 1920, during our War of Independence. That was fabulous from beginning to end, plus when I looked at the um, graphics display for this chatter i was just completely mesmerized yeah yeah the months when like israel or brazil a lot of vietnam obviously when we were at war in vietnam and then a little like brief south korea spot it was just really surprisingly almost nothing for afghanistan that was what really Hmm. shocked me afghanistan was very very low and i was and even in not the month of 9-11 and the months after 9-11 it was there was the uk for some reason anyway no doubt. No doubt uh, their explanations. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Audio. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there, especially if you have a rolling, mellifluous Irish accent. Even if you don't, you can still tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? There was a piece in The Atlantic by the excellent, excellent, lively writer Caitlin Flanagan, which is headlined, You Really Need to Quit Twitter. And it's about how she forced herself to quit Twitter. She forced herself by having her son change her password and writing a contract which forbade him under any circumstances from giving her access to her account uh, for a month. She did it because she felt herself undergoing changes, bad changes, the changes of addiction, and so she wanted to escape it. So the question is, should we quit Twitter? Should one quit Twitter? Is Twitter, in fact, causing terrible mental incapacity in all of us, making us unable to read. That's what Flanagan finds in herself, that she finds that she can no longer read anything and concentrate on reading, maybe even no longer able to write anything because we think in these, as she puts it, these haikus, these 280 character haikus, those of us who are spend time on Twitter. Um, did this strike a chord with you, John? Well, yes or no, not with respect to Twitter itself exactly, but I, I mean, so for the, for the longest time, you know, I, uh, my great, unpublished, really, truly groundbreaking unpublished series um, right before I left Slate um, on Restraint was all about this idea, which is now, you know, it wasn't new then, and it certainly isn't new now, which is that in the life of uh, where we, where there are so many institutions that we spend time with designed to stealing our attention from us, targeting our, mo- our, our most easily appealed to emotions and chemical dependencies to steal our attention, that we have to find ways to restrain ourselves from 
immediate addiction. And for her, it was Twitter. For other people, it's it's email. For other people, it's living in the shallows of Pinterest. And whatever it is, you have to build a system to get yourself away from it, or else you can't do the kind of work that gives you joy and meaning in your life. And as Cal Newport argues in um, Deep Work, the kind of work that is increasingly valued by the economy. So everybody needs to find a way to get out of the shallows. And this was her attempt to get out of the grip of Twitter, which for her was particularly noxious. And there are lots of reasons Twitter is. For me, I basically have moved very far away from it on my own as an unpleasant thing. I don't feel like it's an addiction, but certainly recognize all of the baleful effects that she identifies as, as having a strong pull over her. Can I just start by saying what a delightful essay this is to read? And if all we get out of uh, Flanagan's month or more away from Twitter is this one essay, it will be just like a boon to the world and is itself uh, making the case for um, at least getting her off Twitter because this is just such a, it's the best thing I've read of hers in a long time. You know, what I was thinking about is that one of the things this essay gets at is the difference between quitting social media and desperately wanting social media just not to exist anymore at all. There's taking yourself out of the game, which for her sounds like absolutely a healthy psychological move and better for her work. And then there's just wishing there was no conversation going on that you then had to feel excluded from or that you'd taken, you'd excluded yourself from. I mean, I really do flirt with the idea that we would just be better off if social media platforms didn't exist whatsoever, that they do so much more harm than good, that even with all of the wonderful celebration of free speech and the way that it has democratized participation in debates, and I see huge benefits to it, including to my children, it also just causes tremendous damage, like apart from ethnic violence and ruining elections, which is like very real. I think that it also makes people really anxious and insecure in unhelpful ways. It definitely has that effect on me some of the time. I don't think I'm addicted to it, but I can't quite bring myself to get off it. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 